0: Uh, ladies and gentlemen, are you able to hear quite well at the back? Yes, yes. Thank you. Welcome to the Freud Museum uh, and to this evening's author's talk, which poses the question Is psychoanalysis possible in the Islamic Republic of Iran. Um, introducing our guest speaker tonight is Thakri uh, David. Um, he's a psychoanalyst and has academic and clinical positions in South Africa and in the United Kingdom. He's a visiting lecturer at Tavistock Clinic. Um, Fakri has written on a number of psychoanalytic topics He has a long-standing interest in whether psychoanalysis is able to journey beyond the Western bourgeois birthplace and across boundaries of race, class and culture which is a, an interest uh, extremely appropriate for this evening's talk uh, he's, uh, he's spoken many times at the Freud Museum and dealt with many uh, thorny issues that covered religion, art and fundamentalism and his book, uh, Internal Racism, A Psychoanalytic Approach to Race and Difference, was published in 2011. I'd just like to say that uh, copies of Gohar's book, uh, Doing Psychoanalysis in Tehran, are available for sale in the museum shop tonight, and, and she's kindly agreed to sign copies following this talk. Um, but for now, thank you to both of you for uh, coming to Freud tonight, and uh, by free. thank you.
1: Thank you. <laughs> tonight it's really a very great pleasure to introduce to you Gohar, whose quite extraordinary book and writing she's going to talk to us about tonight. And that's, of course, the main purpose of this. So I'm not going to say a lot. But I did want to just remember that in about, I think, 1988, we had a conference at the Tavistock trying to think about issues of race and culture. And Jaffa Karim, who founded the Intercultural, Nafsiad Intercultural Therapy Center here in London, spoke very movingly of going to Vienna and trying to get an analysis for himself. And one of the things he mentioned that happened in his first interview was that the analyst asked him whether he understood what psychoanalysis was all about. And what he meant was something rather patronizing, in that he saw in front of him an Indian who was assumed to have no clue as to why he was in Vienna trying to get a form of treatment with an analyst. And they had an interesting conversation about how psychoanalysis was really a Western thing and that the analyst had to make sure that he understood the kind of undertaking he was trying to make himself a patient in. Now, of course, we all know that Freud didn't see psychoanalysis like that at all. To him it was not a Western thing, but he saw the, the whole endeavor as trying to reach somewhere deeper, into something fundamental, something intrinsically intrinsic to the human condition, to how the mind emerges and how the structure of the mind can be understood and all this sort of stuff. And I was very interested a few years ago to read that one of the first psychoanalytic study groups, as they were called in those, those times, to be formed on the planet was the Indian psychoanalytic psycho, uh, study group. It's a very interesting fact that isn't it? Because we'd also have to acknowledge that for all that kind of sort of reaching out across the globe, psychoanalysis has tended to thrive here in the West. Um, this is where it's taken hold. This, and this is where largely it's been confined to. Now many of us, including myself, of course, are foreigners who come from a different world and come into these western heartlands where we learn the craft of psychoanalysis, we pursue our interest, we deepen our involvement in it, and so on. And the trouble is that many, most of us, end up staying here and becoming part of this world. So that the notion that psychoanalysis might actually travel beyond its western heartlands is very seldom... An experience that analysts can speak from, and it's with that, with that in mind that I think Goa's book that she's produced is so fascinating, because, and I'll, I'll hand over to her very quickly because I know we want to hear her voice, but she's somehow found a way to address the question of can psychoanalysis travel. Beyond its kind of western milieu, where it thrived and so on. Is that possible? And she's done it in an absolutely remarkable way. Because I'm sure all of you who've have, who have read her book can't be, can't but be impressed by how she speaks, not about topics that might be relevant to that question, but she simply speaks as a psychoanalyst. Her writing is the, from the stance of a psychoanalyst. She lets one into not only the world of her consulting room in Tehran, but also the world, her inner world, the world of her struggles as she tries to stay with her patients in a way that is faithful to the psychoanalytic method. And there's something absolutely beautiful, I think, about the way Gohar manages to let one in and to answer the question that way which in a way is the only way a psychoanalyst can answer the question of can psychoanalysis travel. So I'm not going to say very much more about the book, because in your own voice you can convey that, of course, much, much better. But just to say a bit about her, she was born in Paris to Iranian parents. After studying psychology and sociology at Queen's University in Kingston, Canada, she moved to Boston where she received a master's and a doctorate from the Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis, and she was indeed the youngest graduate who became a psychoanalyst from that school. Gohar Homayompur is currently in private practice in psychoanalysis in Tehran. She's a training and supervising analyst and lectures in psychology at the Shahid Beheshti University in Tehran. Since her return to Iran six years ago, she's established the Freudian Group of Tehran, the first of its kind, to provide psychoanalytic training in Iran under IPA regulations. She's the author of various articles on psychoanalysis in Iran, psychoanalysis in cinema, psychoanalysis in mythology, femininity, and psychoanalysis of culture and language. Her book, doing psychoanalysis in Tehran was published in 2012 and of course you remember that. Without any further ado I'm going to invite her to open up this discussion. She's going to talk a bit about some excerpts from the book but she's very much hoping that this will be a dialogue (coughs) between you and her. So, Thank you.
2: Thank you, Patrick, for that very generous introduction, and um, thank you, everyone at the Freud Museum, here for the invitation. I just came from Vienna, from Berchtesgaden 19, and for a militant Freudian, this feels like a pilgrimage <laughs> from there to Mansfield Gardens, and it's um, such a pleasure to be here. Um, as Sahri was saying, I'm really hoping to, in the spirit of the style of the book, to open this and make it a dialogue. And, um, you know, we can, if you have any questions or comments, we can talk about that. But um, along the lines of what you were saying about psychoanalysis being this Western sort of creation, and I was, we were just talking and I was telling him that um, I get this question that I think I also mentioned in the book but I get this question all the time that do Iranians free associate (coughs) and I used to come up, try to come up with very sophisticated theoretical answers and I realized that it's not working so now I say of course not we're just aliens (laughs) and that works better (laughs) so um this is the part that um, I write at the beginning of the book about. Yeah, I'm very passionate about this. And um, that's why I like to read to you parts of the book with some parts that I've added to it. Um, but in regard specifically to this topic. So from the Western point of view, there seems to be an uncanny correlation The more politically scandalous Iran becomes, and the more scrutinized it is by the Western other, the more desirable an object it becomes. And so in recent years there has been a heightened desire for anything from Iran and about Iran. For example, a demand for all sorts of artistic productions, from movies to photos and literature. Of course there's a specific frame you have to follow in creating this exotic other in order for it to be accepted and rewarded as what I have termed terrorist art. In simple terms, in more psychoanalytic terms, the delinquent child in the family seems to be the one who gets all the attention. My experience of speaking in different venues about psychoanalysis in Iran has been interesting. The audience's reaction to my account has been... Quite curious, I would characterize this reaction as a fascinated rejection, to borrow Julia Kristeva's expression. The topic of doing psychoanalysis in Iran conjures up some fascinating fantasies from the start. The listener usually anticipates some juicy and exotic stories, yet, this fascination is accompanied by a rejection suggesting the impossibility of doing psychoanalysis in Iran. I feel that I have almost caused disappointment by presenting case material that are similar to those of patients in Boston or New York. These reactions could also be characterized as a form of Orientalism, to borrow Edward Said's term. The exotic or Oriental other is fascinating for the Westerner but the gaze is one that makes the other inferior. It's not the same kind of exoticness that the French enjoy. I have a French friend who's always arguing with me that we're also eroticized, and I always tell her, there's a difference between being eroticized for creme brûlée, and it is for being eroticized for chador. (laughs) However, without going into the details of Said's theoretical position, I would like to add to Said's position the responsibility of the Orientals themselves in creating Orientalism. We have to stop blaming the West for our condition, for our destiny. I'm not playing the blame game. We do it to ourselves because there are so many neurotic games within this process. Change starts within ourselves. We have to give up the pleasures of being looked upon as erotic, exotic, and strange. We have to come face to face with our inevitable ordinariness. According to Dolores and Gattari, the impossibility of being in your own home provides us with an ontological misunderstanding, the tragedy of identity. The concept of worrying strangeness is a Freudian concept used by Kristeva as one explanation of this tragedy. The fear of the other and the worry of strangeness are both the result of the fear of the difference of the other, (coughs) the stranger within ourselves. We are scared of what we are and we are scared of our unleashed desires. Hence, we transfer our fear to the other, to the stranger to the one who's not us, and to the difference. The other both is both of the source of our anxiety and the danger which threatens us. The fear that we experience, the strangeness, is more of an internal phenomenon than an external one. The worrying strangeness can never compete with the fear and the anxiety of facing our own unconscious, our femininity, or the fear of facing death. The worrying strangeness is closely related to the childish fear of the other. The other in the form of death, the other in the form of the woman, and the other in the form of our own uncontrollable desires. In short, the fear of the other as a stranger within ourselves. The fight we put up against this is the same fight we put up against our own unconscious. And the only possible deridim hospitality we could offer would be to accept and welcome these strangers into the fearful territory in which we, the stranger and the self, are both living. If we do this, then something wonderful might happen. We might end up loving something that by conviction or by our nature we should have not loved. I believe the existential dilemma every writer, psychoanalyst, or artist faces today in countries such as Iran is how to write this delinquent status without becoming the delinquent, and how to speak to the other in a language that is not in the realm of jouissance, but that of desire. Let me read parts of the books, part, parts of the book that I have signed for you. That's okay. <clears throat> I think... So I think this is apropos for London to choose this part. My associations fully abandon my patient and take me further away from her to this morning when I had woken up to the Tehran sun. This is one of the most treasured characteristics of my city. The sun is always there, every morning, like a faithful lover. I once asked a British friend, why did you choose to live in Tehran? She said, because of the sun. You people take it for granted. Do you know what it means for a Londoner to have sunny days every day of the year, day in and day out? No, you don't know. You always had it, you expect it. You do not even get disappointed if it's not there one day. You find the rain romantic. You say, good, we have rain in the country. The country needs water. You know you can afford to make such grandiose comments because you know the sun always comes back to you. I hate the rain. I would rather watch my whole country dry up than ever see a drop of rain again. Does that answer your question? I moved to Tehran for the sun. I do not want any of the privileges London has to offer if it means to, ha- if it means having to tolerate rain one more day. In a sense, the Londoner was right. It seems Iranians tend to eroticize death, mourning, sadness, and depression encapsulated in rain. I wonder if it could have to, do, if it has to do with our Oedipus, a boy named Sohra. Our famous myth, Rostamu Sohra from Ferdowsi's Book of Kings, the Shah Namir, has a storyline quite similar to that of Oedipus Rex. The main difference being that it's the father who unknowingly kills his son at the end. As a Freudian, I'm convinced of the universality of the Oedipus complex and the struggle for power and control it represents, while embodying within it the universal fear of castration. However, the culturally specific element (coughs) seems to be the reaction to this fear. My premise is that the Iranian collective (laughs) fantasy is accord in an anxiety of disobedience that wishes for an absolute obedience. The sons, while desiring to rebel, know unconsciously that if they do so, they might get killed. And so, in a way, they settle for the fear of castration. I find that this could be characteristic of traditional cultures. We know that laws are developed as a reaction to solve certain problems in society. Hence, within the history of Iran, we can again see the demand for absolute obedience as a reaction formation to the anxiety of the potential rebelliousness of the culture, in this case the sons. So ironically, this culture of absolute obedience on the surface is indeed a rebellious one internally. One of the first times I taught the course at the university, when I had just moved back, I was so surprised because I came from the States, which you know in university classes, you even had your feet up in front of the professor. But as soon as I would walk in, everybody would got up, and they would say, oh, the professor is here. I was very shocked, but after five minutes, after they had all politely gotten up for me, they would do everything to destroy your authority. (laughs) (laughs) You know, this is the point that I'm trying to convey here. This means, essentially, that laws in Iran are followed as long as the police, the law, and the father are present. So, you know, to use psychoanalytic terminology, so it's not internalized. If they're not there within this culture of no rebellion, every rebellious act becomes possible. Is this not also seen in the differences between Catholicism and Islam? Islam means submission and demands absolute obedience to God the Father, while in Christianity, the demarcation between God the Father and Christ the Son is not quite clear. It seems as though religions were socially constructed to fill these collective fantasies of these different cultures. An analysis of Iranian history reveals that it has constantly been a one-man show. In Iran, one can observe a moment of discontinuity from the past and also from the future. Because we have killed our sons, our future, Ferdowsi's discourse communicates a lot of pain, tragedy and mourning. We killed our sons, became alienated, and thus became a culture of mourning, where we destroyed and killed the best part of ourselves. We destroyed our future and imprisoned ourselves in the past, eroticizing pain and suffering and celebrating nothing. That is not past. Iranians love to say, everything has been made by Iranians, by the way, if you don't know. <laughs> from wine to everything else. <laughs> Could we say that Ferdowsi's discourse <coughs> provides a diagnosis of Iranian society? He's trying to warn us, awaken us. His discourse is that of the depressive. We never properly mourned the loss of our glorious past before it was taken over by Islam. Our melancholic response was to create Shi'ism, which is a culture of mourning, as a way of mourning the symbolic past. Through this ever-repetitive mourning, we attempt to master the sudden trauma of having suddenly lost our sense of who we are. Darusha Shaigon, who's one of our important philosophers, has one line that I think encapsulates this point, and he says that Iranians breathe in the air of regrets. Which I think is, um, you know, beautifully summarizes this. Okay, so after all this serious um, discourse, I'm going to read some um, clinical vignettes, which are usually less serious from the book. This discourse reminds me of a young suicidal male patient I have at the clinic who shows up dressed in all black, and whose only conscious demand is for me to listen to him and eventually agree that it's his right to kill himself. That's all he wanted from me. So when I asked him, why are you here? He said, I just need you to tell me it's my right to kill myself. He elaborates beautifully on the pain of the human condition, on the essence of pain and of solitude, and on all the very reg- legitimate reasons we can all have for committing suicide. I asked him one day, so how come you haven't killed yourself? Because I was convinced. I was getting convinced. He responded, have you ever looked at your mother's face when she has prepared your favorite meal? Have you ever bitten into a just-dried peach in the middle of a summer day? Have you ever decided to spend a few thousand Tumon, the equivalent of $2, on a meal even though you're so stingy that it goes against every grain in your body? Those are the moments that keep me alive. The truth is, I have not yet decided if I want to be so revengeful. A young girl of 24 walks into my office, covered from head to toe in a very thick black chador, which exposes only her big brown eyes. She sits down and starts crying as soon as I utter the word, What brings you here? She replies, what brings me here? What brings me here? I have lost the one thing no woman should ever lose. And then she sits there, crying hysterically and looking at me, waiting for a response. I found myself dumbfounded. I was trying as hard as I can to think of what it might be. What has she lost? Absolutely unable to come up with the answer, I asked her to elaborate. She looks at me and whispers, You really do not know? I have heard that you people can be bizarre. But how can a woman not intuitively know what I'm referring to? I have lost my virginity. And because of it, I have to move out of my parents' house. Not because they asked me to. This was what was particularly interesting to me. So not because her parents asked her to. But I just had to. I do not deserve to eat their bread and butter anymore. I'm a disgrace. I do not deserve their kindness. I have dishonored my father's name. I should not pollute their sacred home. A very big macho truck driver comes in, saying, I heard there's a psychoanalyst in this clinic, and I want to understand myself better. I'm ashamed of how I feel. Because I have to face what by now it has become painfully clear are my own value (coughs) judgments and prejudices. Since I expected any response from him except a desire for self-knowledge. Well, why should this be? Can't big macho truck drivers have the desire to know themselves? Later on, I learned that he's afraid of the dark. And has made his wife leave the lights on in their bedroom every night for the last 12 years. I will never forget the day he came in and told me, Doctor, I had a dream I was having sex with my mother the other night. This unconscious is messing with my honor. You have you have got to heal my soul. I'm at your mercy. When I awoke from my dream, I started talking to my unconscious, begging it to stop producing these terrifying images. I could not tell you before, but a few nights earlier, I had another dream that I was having sex with both my sister and my sister-in-law at the same time. F, a young girl who moved to Tehran from Essan to study journalism just a few years back, comes to see me comfortably throwing herself onto the big leather chair in my office. She crosses her legs and says, I'm here to talk to you about my sexuality. I enjoy having sex, but only if I'm not in a passive position. I like to initiate sex. I do not like boundaries when it comes to sexual pleasure. I'm not shy. I like to be on top sometimes, and I definitely have to have an orgasm. So I asked her what her problem was. (laughs) (laughs) She says, Iranian men do not like that. I have just had to dump another boyfriend yet again because he kept asking me to be passive, telling me that he could not perform if I initiated sex. The words that turned him on were no or stop. What turns me on are yes and don't stop. He told me you will never find a husband with your overt sexual behavior. <laughs> a woman should always hide the fact that she's enjoying sex. Only prostitutes are supposed to get pleasure out of sex, not decent women. This is my problem, doctor. I need you to help me find a man who lets me be the person I really am during sex. A woman who very, very much enjoys having sex. So, you can imagine listening to patients, I continuously think of Winnicott, who says, We do psychoanalysis when we can, and when we can't, we do what we can. <laughs> <laughs> let me see, I'm going to finish soon, but let me just read one more part to you that I think it's a nice way to follow this. Vignettes. So while seeing patients like the ones you know, I just gave you a few examples of, I cannot help but think, of, but, but think of Andre Green's paper. Has sexuality anything to do with psychoanalysis? Because just by running a simple Google search, one quickly becomes aware that Green is not the only one raising such concerns and proposing such debates. Contemporary psychoanalysis seems to be full of questions, such as, where have all the hysterics gone? Do we still have neurotic patients on our couches? Yesterday's hysterics are today's borderlines. Neurosis is a myth of the past. And does anybody talk about sex anymore in psychoanalysis? Well, I have found the answer to Green's question. I have found sexuality in Tehran. In Tehran, today's sexuality is still Freud's sexuality. Since the very beginning, my couch has been full of good old hysterics and various other kinds of neurotics. In short, in Tehran, I have encountered a kind of patient who's very much in line with the kinds of patients Freud was seeing during his time. A kind of patient that reminds me of a time when psychoanalysis was still in its early years. I have also been astonished at the condor and willingness of patients in expressing sexual material openly within the sessions, especially considering the traditional Iranian cultural base. So most of the time I was the one embarrassed because it was still very hard for me hearing these things in Farsi. But the patients had no problem at hello to talk about everything. Um, Let me just finish with one of the last lines of the book to finish with a line from Freud. So in 1905, Freud wrote, Auntie, speak to me. I'm frightened because it's so dark. His aunt answered him, What good would that do? You can't see me. That does not matter, replied the child. If anyone speaks, it gets light. Thank you. (laughs)
1: Thank you very much, Gohar, for that stimulating window (laughs) into your thinking and your use of your psychoanalytic organ, so to speak. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder, um, shall we throw it open?
2: Yes. Of course.
1: Is it? Do you need the microphone? Or? Mm.
3: Uh, I don't need the microphone. Do you need the microphone? <laughs> <laughs> uh, just a brief comment.
4: Yeah, sorry, I can't, yeah.
3: No, if, if I stand up. A brief comment. You, you started with the question that was constantly posed to you, is psychoanalysis possible in Tehran? Mm. Having listened to you, it seems to be more the question, is psychoanalysis still possible in the West? <laughs> because it's clear, as you say, that traditional Freudian structures still operate in terror. So the question of the cultural variance, in a way, remains valid, but it's reversed. So it's still a question of asking, why is psycho- psychoanalysis, in a funny way, so so effective in in Iran, in that cultural context, mm-hmm. where everything tells us that psychoanalysis becomes increasingly less effective under the conditions of modern Western society. Mm-hmm. So the question remains valid, but it's almost the terms are reversed. Mm-hmm. And and that's why it's been very interesting hearing some of your mm-hmm. material. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's less effective in the West, but it's
2: less popular now in the West. So the you know... I think the question that you're raising is very interesting in the sense that, you know, and I talk about that a little bit in the book and in other places, that why, in a sense, psychoanalysis is so successful in Iran, I find. And I think that is a very cultural thing. You know, one of the you know, simple answers to that is that Iranians love to talk. So, you know, to propose to them that, you know, this is a place that you just come and talk, most people are in. <laughs> and, um, you know, so, and, but I'm not sure in the West, I mean, you probably could comment more effectively about this. Do you think it's less effective or just it's
1: becoming less popular? It's difficult to know, isn't it? It's yeah. certainly harder to do analysis than it was, say, 20 years ago. Yeah. That is certainly true, but, you know, what is going on It's not so easy. It's not so easy to get hold of. Mm-hmm. You know, we're sort of in the middle of something that it's not so easy to get perspective on. Yeah. You know, is it that different? I mean, is I mean, is it a sort of sort of silly way of talking about it, but you know, in a way is psychoanalysis a victim of its own success in the West? You know, in the sense that everybody talks about Freud and everybody knows about everybody's complexes and you know, I mean, whatever we might think of it, it's, it's part of the culture in a way, and one wonders whether that's part of what's going on. That, that the need not only to talk, but to be understood, in, or not understood even, to be heard in a certain way, is being mocked up, partly because of the effect, the influence that psychoanalysis had, has had on culture generally. And has that then left? you know, a rump of problems that are a whole lot more difficult to get of. It's one way of looking at it, but you know, I think. Um, Lisa, and then there, and then there. It's really a question about context. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sorry, it's,
5: it's a question people. about context, mm-hmm.
4: and um, from what you say, it sounds like a very exciting uh, time and indeed place to be doing psychoanalysis in so But what context do you practice it? You say people come to your clinic. And, um, I mean, who sends them? How do they find out? Um, I don't know anything about the medical system. Is should a GP referral? Do they phone you? Do you advertise somewhere? I mean, how, how do they know what it is that you do and who you are? I mean, here I think, just, just to follow one from what you said. I think one of the problems is that, you know, psychoanalysis is so much part of culture that it's become its own unconscious. We don't think we need it. We think we need pills and very specific diagnoses. Um, and that's you know, perhaps a different story. So I'm just curious about the context in which you practice.
2: You know, as I I mean, I have a private <coughs> practice that, of course, like, you know, in a very similar way to you know, for example, the private practice I had in Boston you get a very different group of patients, which is a different socioeconomic background. You know, they're much more educated. But for example, the truck driver I got at the university, at, a, at the university clinic. But what was fascinating for me, as I mentioned in the book, is that he specifically wanted psychoanalysis. Because what I don't say in the book is that, you know, I was there, I would do these intakes with patients and decide, who I would send to whom, and take the files for psychoanalysis with me that I thought they were more appropriate for psychoanalysis. So when he mentioned to me in the first session that this dark problem, you know, this fear of dark that he was having was getting in the way of his work, I thought I'm going to send him to a behavioral therapist. They're going to, you know, fix him quickly. Then he was very angry, and he said, no, but I specifically wanted psychoanalysis. And he ended up working with me for five years. And he did a, you know, um, real psychoanalysis with me. So this was what was very surprising to me. Because otherwise, it's very similar. So, you know, whatever, as you said, it, whatever context you're working in, you get a very different group of patients. But there is a certain curse and desire for psychoanalysis that I did not observe, for example, when I was working in Boston mm-hmm. or when I work with different colleagues um, or, you know, talk with them. Mm-hmm. And, but do you think this is part of a love affair with the West? I mean,
4: to, to go from your earlier rebellion... Um, <clears throat> I'm,
2: I'm not sure if that... Uh, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not sure about that. But I think it's a part of a love affair with themselves, in a sense. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yes, I was... Sorry, that's the, the bed.
0: Then,
6: do you want to just take the... Uh, well,
0: I
4: may I may be able to share this. Yeah. Okay. I was wondering. Can you hear? No?
0: Yeah. Yes. Well, I was quite curious about that lorry driver being so incestuous and so on, and I was wondering how you handled. It. He
2: wasn't incestuous. He was just drinking. Well, yeah. I <laughs> he, was, he, was he, he wasn't doing anything. <laughs> but he was disturbed. Yes. But <laughs> I was wondering
4: how did you handle your here and now,
0: with
2: or or any other patients. Yes, yes, that. It was was very interesting because, you know, in the years that we worked together, um, of course, some, you know, erotic transference came in, but it was always in the format of, doctor, I'm going to protect you. You know, so he would come in and say, is this secretary bothering you? Because I'm really, you know, this sort of eroticism. It was not the sort that I want to sleep with you. You know, he didn't dream about sleeping with me ever. (laughs) But he, you know, so that got, um, that got transferred into this sort of sublimated desire to protect me and take care of me. And, you know, of course, we worked through that.
1: Can, can we follow that up, Tua? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> did you ever interpret that? Mm-hmm. I, the manifest content of the dream, mm-hmm. or the fantasy, is not just about the sister or the mother. Yep.
2: Do you go know there? This is the very point interesting. Point. Because, of course, I mean, as mm-hmm. you know, and all the psychoanalysts in the audience would know, you right away hear it about yourself. Mm-hmm. I chose not to interpret that for various reasons. One was that it was very early in the analysis still, and two, I think that he would have, you know, if he was, you know, I think that he was telling me two things. He was also mentioning, if we actually listen to what he's saying about how terrifying this experience was for him. So I also heard in his discourse that I should not underestimate how fearful this is for him. So I think to have interpreted that at that moment would have been a little sadistic on my part. So I, cho- I I heard it, but I chose not to interpret. It. I thought that it would have built more resistance than work than allow me to work through anything.
1: And can I just ask you, is there a difference between your practice in Boston and your practice in Tehran with respect to that particular? Normally.
2: You mean interpreting erotic transference yeah. yeah. No, because again, like the practice in Boston, it's patient specific. So, with this, you know, truck driver who comes from a certain back, you know, but with some other patients, no. It's very patient specific.
1: That that helps, doesn't it, to clarify the technique business, because one of the things that's so impressive by the way you write is, I mean, what you've just illuminated there is the way any good psychoanalyst would operate, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. That one would hear the material, you would understand the different layers of meaning it might have. And you'd be sensitive to what you think would be appropriate and right for the patient to manage, given where the treatment is. And that that kind of, you know, the ability, I think, within the countertransference, to have all of that analytic machinery going, as it were, is so impressive. Because that is what is convincing, I think, about the way you write. That it is possible, one sees, can see then, for psychoanalysis to operate mm-hmm. in the sense that you give a, a lovely window into how it operates in you mm-hmm. that is so convincing. You see, quite apart from the cases. Mm-hmm. Now, the next person is over there, Ivan. and then in front. <laughs>
2: okay.
1: You're next. Yeah.
2: I um when I first saw the name of your your book, I was very interested to know what type of people went to see you. And then you, when I came tonight, you explained. Well, what's their age group? And the reason I ask is because um, I'm Iranian, and for quite a few years I was psychoanalysed. Like, and um, when I first started telling my other Iranian friends that I go to an analyst, and they said, "What? Well, do you tell? Her, do you tell her everything?" I mm-hmm. mean, like everything. And they were very surprised. And I said. Yeah. And there was that sort of idea that maybe some stuff is better not told to anyone or, you know, so embarrassing or too outrageous. And I just wondered whether it's sort of like my age group, perhaps your patients are much younger and therefore they come from a different sort of way of thinking. They don't care about what other people think about them or being judged. No, I mean, I I have not, um, again, this is very similar to my experience practicing anywhere else. Well, my my only experience of practicing anywhere else is in Boston. So there's no, you know, age difference between my patients. I get all kinds of... I think what I'm hearing in what your friends told you is just the resistance to psychoanalysis. We hear it in different formats, and this is one way um, of... um, Elaborating your resistance to the unconscious. <coughs> That's all. I don't think it's Iranian or age, age or or age. or age specific at all. Okay. Mm.
1: In front here. Yes. yes.
4: Thank you very much, Mrs. Omaioni. First of all, let me wish you a happy new year. Um, and secondly, because I'm blind, I've asked my friends to read a question for you. But before that, I also wanted to just say, um, in, quite, in, in regard to the sexuality issue, do you not think that the repression in Iran could um, facilitate this business of people wanting to talk sexuality with their
2: psychoanalysis? Mm. That's, a,
4: that, that's an
2: interesting question. I think it's um, a sociological study that would be interesting for someone to do. So I'm just going to guess, because you know I haven't done the study and I'm not an expert, but I'm going to guess that it might influence it, but I would not think it's the um, only layer of it.
4: Okay, I also got the question you
7: should ask my friend to read Yes, please. Yes. Okay. And here it is. It's You stress the importance of the universal, which makes psychoanalysis relevant everywhere. But isn't psychoanalysis concerned with the particular impact of the external world on the internal world of the particular patient? In other words, isn't context all important, as the book's title suggests? Um,
2: I'm not hearing the mutual exclusiveness of these two arguments. I think that. Um, You know, it reminds me when they say that, well, then what is specifically Iranian about doing psychoanalysis in Tehran? And I think that actually, the more you adhere to these universal ideas, it's the only time that you can genuinely have a specific idea as well. I know it's paradox. It's a paradox, but I don't think they're mutually exclusive. So in order for me to actually say anything specific about Iran, first and foremost, I have to um, accept that I'm talking about the human condition and I'm talking about things that are not just Iranian. Only from there I can say something that is specifically Iranian.
1: Can I say something in relation to that? Because I wonder just to come back to that question. You see, the way I heard you talk about the, uh, not the very first issue about the other, you then went on to talking about the Oedipal configuration that you think that you observe in that particular context, and I found that fascinating. Mm -hmm. Now, I wondered, because what I I heard you make specific observations that belong to that context, Mm -hmm. and The way in which, as far as you could see, the universal problematic of the Oedipus situation that has to be faced is faced. That's the psychic kind of task. But you think that what you observe is a particular kind of constellation which emerges in that context rather than in the West.
2: That's a a Mm -hmm. good example of the theory I was just Mm -hmm. talking about, which is that, you know, I start from the fact that the Oedipus Complex is universal. Mm -hmm. But then the reaction to it is very culturally specific. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take away from the universality of the Oedipus Complex the opposite. it you know, it sort of uh, reinforces that configuration. But then we say, well, here, you know, we're observing this, we read in the mythology so we can say that the reaction to this universal phenomenon can be very culturally specific.
1: Yeah. And I, I thought, I mean, does that not get some way to what you're talking about? Because it is a, a very particular function, isn't it, as a psychologist, as a researcher? Yeah. Because you're also recording observations that come from that context that on the surface, at least, look a bit different from what comes from another context. And I thought that that was marvelously deep. I mean, you have a remarkable way, I think, of of touching on. You have a lightness of touch, I think, where one senses that you are putting your finger on, on an observation that's incredibly astute and that has deep roots, you know, which sort of makes one engage. So, for instance, you then say there's that Oedipal configuration that you think is different to what one sees, say, in the West. And then you link it to these larger issues to do yes. with mourning, for example, mourning of a lost past that you think has not been what we would call, from a purely psychoanalytic point of view, not been properly done. And that is the, is the consequence of that that it feeds into this kind of Oedipal configuration. That's what I loved exactly. about the way you, you sort of you opened it up. And I'm sure Freud would have loved that. Because it is taking seriously that there is something universal that we may have here, but also that if we look in different contexts we might deepen and enrich our understanding, of, of our study of how this thing works. So it's one of the things I think that's absolutely marvelous about the way you deal with you know, you use your craft to, deep, to contribute to the psychoanalytic perspective on these things. So, I, I your, thank you very much for that question, because it does touch, yeah. I think, on, on these things. Now, we have to travel right to the yeah. back. I'm, I'm sorry, and then we have to come back. There are two people at the back that according to me at first, and then we'll come back to you. Thank you for your presentation. Uh, just have on one, just to on
8: the observation, gentlemen. Reverse at the beginning. Um, I, I would like to make a point. To, uh, I mean, reference like to some yeah. of other things. Processualization. Uh, mm-hmm. I see. I see that how you try to um, express Freud's accidental, universal, sort of pluralistic in the particular uh, first layer of how you collected
1: if you can that my still,
8: still. still and <laughs> how ultimately it could transcend and bring about a uh, universal sort of cure. Uh, but My point is that if you can consider Freud's sort of psychoanalysis uh, apparatus as a post-humanist uh, uh, secularist stock age sort of worldview, doesn't it have some sort of cultural uh, strategic uh, contradiction between the sort of more Oriental, Middle Eastern, uh, religious worldview doesn't have that kind of clash that it couldn't be overarchingly applied to that region of the world. Do you really think that it could sort of, uh, prevail? i to let you take
2: this.
1: It is your voice. You
8: practice in Tehran, but if we take a broader perspective amongst the whole nation, does it really have that potential to really have a sustainable future, let alone a more secularist, westernized, sort of educated castle? Really, could it be applicable amongst the whole nation, or even a broader perspective in the region? in the sense that there's still in you know, a religious, sort of, based worldview, as for it is very much
2: secularist. Yeah, I mean, everything I have to say in response to this question, I said in my presentation. So, And, and more you can read about it in the book. I really don't have anything to add besides what I just said. That's why you have anything to add.
1: <laughs> well, well, I, I would prefer, you see, the way I would look at that is that you need first to think about the way we as Westerners see the Middle East. Okay. And this notion, I mean, I, this notion that the Islamic Republic of Iran is dominated by a single discourse called Islam, I think is problematic. You know, societies don't work like that. There are all manner of contradictory mm. forces that are present within any society, even from the outside. You know, just the same as if we look at ourselves, you know, here we think of ourselves as a secular society, it doesn't mean that you can't find all sorts of contradictory and other forces that go in it. So it's a question of to what extent the so-called religious has hegemony over a given society. And I would have thought that the whole point of your presentation is that it's not total. Yes. Now you've got a practice, you work in a clinic, which is presumably a state clinic, and so on. So that you know it is not so sort of monolithic as one from within Western, from within a Western perspective, has led to believe. Or to put it in another way, we look at the other, as you put, put it earlier, through a racist kind of lens. Yes. Now, you've first got to deconstruct that, you know, to get a a better feel of what it is. Exactly,
2: as nothing is, you know, these Mm -hmm. fixed um, entities. And we have a common friend that Lisa also knows, Ruben Gallo, who teaches at Princeton University. And me and him have an ongoing joke, because I call it the Islamic Republic of Princeton. (laughs) (laughs) Because you would be surprised about certain similarities. For example, he was just telling me a story, because he was in Vienna on the panel with me, that um, they are um, kicking out an 18-year-old student, male student, because um, he had sex with an 18-year-old girl. They were both freshmen. And then the girl the next morning, because she was... She lost her virginity, and she's extremely Catholic, so my psychoanalytic interpretation is from guilt. Mm -hmm. He, She went to the university office and said, he raped me. And they called them in, and they started asking questions. They asked the girl, what happened? They said, did he force you? No. And he said, who's this extremely shy guy, according to him, she was doing everything. I didn't do anything. They said, but did you get oral consent? And he said, what do you mean? He said, did you say, am I allowed to enter you? And he said, no, but he was doing, she was doing everything else. And they said, and they're going to kick him out. So we have, this, this is just an example that's in my mind because, you know, as surprising as it is, it's also you know, this is Princeton University, so we have this ongoing joke that this is the Islamic Republic <laughs> of Princeton, which I think it's really, it's an example of what you were just the saying. Complexity. The complexity and yeah. different layers of things, sort of that we should really try to stay away from these fixed uh, ideas. I think um, that's what I was saying, that it's only then that something wonderful might happen.
1: Yeah. It's... If It might just be interesting to know also that, I mean, I happen to know that all over the Arab world, you've got these sort of small pockets of interest in psychoanalysis. In universities, people want to know about it. You know, I spoke recently to somebody who's working in Sudan, can you believe it? The University of Khartoum, where they're interested and they bring people out to come and talk to them about psychoanalysis so I think the picture is probably a lot more complex and no doubt if you were of a particular kind of religious monolithic kind of political party, you wouldn't like that but that is the nature of psychoanalysis, It, it is a subversive activity to say life is not simple and straightforward, we've got to look
2: within. Yeah, that's why they uh, recently the Iranian government called it the enemy of state mm-hmm. psychoanalysis, which I think they're right. <laughs> 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 I agree.
1: It, but but I thought Lisa also raised a very interesting question yes. in relation to you because, you know, there's there is also the sort of um what what do they call it? Sort of Western imperialism. Okay. That sort of permeating the world, and sort of the globalization of Western values, and I suppose that's a factor that one must take into account. But I would have thought that you would ask, to what extent is that a sort of fetishistic um, wish for involvement, and to what extent can you get, you know, to, to, to own a bit of the West because it's glamorous, powerful, or whatever... And, and to what extent is that an entree into something deeper? Yeah. That would be the question,
2: it? Yes. Yeah, but you know I think that people are brought to psychoanalysis in Iran, the same reason they're brought to psychoanalysis everywhere else it's pain mm-hmm. yeah. and um, it's you know, it's this uh, question they have about um, themselves always behind it uh, in this futile attempt, as we know, as psychoanalysts, mm. to reduce this pain.
1: So you're less inclined to think it's got that kind of other element to it?
2: I mean, I think that that element can be also operating because as we're talking about these things are so multifaceted mm. and they have mm. different layers, mm. one doesn't exclude mm. the other. Mm. You know, this is what I see, that this, every time that I interview a patient or take on a new patient, or even all these students at the university who are interested in psychoanalysis. I was telling you earlier that, you know, I'm just as, you know, with, within this Freudian group of Dera that I've established, we just added Skype classes. So I have different colleagues from all over the world who are helping me, and they teach the fundamentals of Freud. We just taught three theories of sexuality. Through Skype in Mashhad, which is one of the most religious, religious <laughs> cities in Iran, and I found that quite sort of, gratifying. Literally <laughs> <laughs> yeah. side by side No, <laughs> <laughs> so we just we're gonna start with three theories of sectra. Right? Yeah. Yeah.
4: So it's a bit confusing. You said that uh, you got your practice, but you also said that. Uh, it's just been announced that uh, psychoanalysis is
2: the enemy of the state. So how does this work? But, you know, it's also been announced that we don't have homosexuals in Iran. I can assure you that we do. Right. So what is announced has not much to do with reality. Right. So it it that is not impinging on your on your practice. It's 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 so um, you know I think that um, psychoanalysts everywhere find a struggle because. The nature of the work produces resistance. So because we have a resistance to the unconscious, I have more challenges to deal with on the Mm reality-based. So inside the consulting room, I'm dealing with somebody's unconscious, and it's the same old resistances. But outside, there are certain things in reality that I have to deal with that could be challenging, of Mm -hmm. course. You know, that, that goes without saying. But I always tell this story, which I think that sort of clarifies how we can find a language to work through these difficulties. Um, the first year I was teaching, and the head of the department was this very devout man, but you know open minded enough to hire me, who teaches three theories of sexuality. And uh, he called me into his office and he said, Dr. Weinberg, I have to ask you something. You know, I let you do what you want, but could you just say libido instead of sex? (laughs) 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 I could have gotten into an argument with him that they're not the same people. I said, of course. Because I, you know, I want to teach these kids what I have to teach them. So, you know, this wouldn't happen here. Somebody wouldn't call you into their office. This is the reality I have to deal with. But, you know, you can find a way to um, so I, I, this, this is,
4: term, this is a, a translation question. So what happens when you're speaking Farsi and what is the difference between the general and
2: sex? You know, he was actually using both words in, in, you know, in sort of Latin, you know, because I teach from an English text and a lot of these words, like, I have no idea what's living or in Farsi. You know, and sex is sex, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Another human condition. <laughs> yeah. no,
1: no you the only
3: just, psychoanalysts just in Tehran, or are there some more?
2: No, there are ten psychoanalysts, <laughs> and three women, the three female psychoanalysts. And do
3: you find yourself problems like... Oh gosh, we can't treat this anymore more clinically. So let's, you know, someone very lucky has a comes to you, or one of your colleagues. Is that the kind, or that's probably just someone? Well, the, the medicine runs out. You know, they come to a full stop. There's no more clinical a, approach. So they, you get called in one of ten to try and sort of. Is that the kind of position, or you know, because I'm, you know the problem with
2: is a 10, is that I'm not sure if you've heard about the Lacanian psychoanalyst who Mm -hmm. has made this very, you know, the the whole French group have made this very public affair about her. Um, So she actually um, had some mental health difficulties, you know, not an advertisement for psychoanalysis, I know. But this happened, and they hospitalized her at a state hospital. And what happened was that where she was trained, which was with Jacqueline Miller in in France, they made this very public affair about her, saying that it's a political matter. And this was not true at all. So I wrote a very critical letter saying that, you know, there are people like me who are trying very slowly, saying libido instead of sex, trying very hard to do this thing that we're here to do. And then when a public affair is made, out of something that is not true, this is really not helping the cause. To mm-hmm. use Freud's terms, so what happened is that you know you you know you people from the government were the ones who were saying very reasonable things, saying, "Did you think this is fair? That this woman has a psychotic break, she gets hospitalized, and then it's called a political affair?" So I was very angry with the French group who you know just made this public sort of, um, you know, um, just to you, you know, th- these public matters like that. Uh, make it very Hollywoody, you know, <laughs> affair out of something. And it's not helpful for psychoanalysis in Iran
1: at all. No, we have to go to the back, mm-hmm. and then we have to go to the front. But, Gohara, I was wanting to ask you, people seem to want to know about your practice. Would you like to say a bit more about that, or...?
2: There's all that needs to be said about it instead. Um I, I mean, as I said, I think this idea that there's very few of us doing psychoanalysis in Iran, and you know, this um, huge population, we have about 13 million people in Tehran, so you can imagine that it leads to full practices with anyone on the couch. Um, there is really, really not that much competition. And um, I'm not sure what else to say because I think I set oh, the clinic. yeah it's a university building yeah. Um, yeah and I think this <laughs> Freudian group of Tehran you know that I've established we have we have about a hundred members now mm-hmm. and we have different um, level of uh, candidates so the candidates that are my advanced candidates that I've been working with for about six years since I since I went there they are. Um, also in the position not to take on patients and te- you know, teach and give supervision. We do a lot of supervision and analysis on the phone because all these people are interested and we don't have enough people. So, you know, I do these quick interviews, figure out what language they speak, and then ask, for example, if the person speaks French, ask a French colleague to take this patient on the phone. And uh, we have patients from these very remote areas in Iran on the phone with analysts in New York so it's fantastic and I'm very very happy that we have these Skype classes now and this is all because of the generosity of colleagues all over the world that they are just um, interested in helping me with our Freudian cause
1: you in know. Iran No, we have to go to the back hello um,
2: I'm a psychology
1: student so forgive me my question Uh, On the one hand, I ask you, and I hear you saying about the universality of the human condition, and on the other hand, uh,
7: perhaps if I'm wrong, please do correct me, I heard you saying that we wonder if there are still neurotics, such as those found in the Freudian time, still around. And I just ask do you think that, or
1: asking this question, whether there are still neurotics out there, is because there are overwhelmingly more nowadays
7: than there used to be in comparison to the non-neurotics?
2: Um, can, you, can you repeat your question? You of say? course. I just, oh, I hear the last of it. We lost the end of it. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. So the question is do you think
7: that the reason why, when ask this question, if there are any neurotics nowadays, is because the neurotics are well, are well more than the non-neurotics nowadays?
2: <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like I think as I mentioned, you know, to go back to Andre Green's question, the psychoanalytic literature says the opposite. If you look at our journals, you know, people somewhere along the line became more interested in aggression than sexuality. So, you know, borderline patients became sort of the newest thing. This became the in thing to talk about these days. and you know, it sort of made you nostalgic for the era of Oedipus <laughs> the king and, you know, these good old hysterics that fainted. And I don't think it's because in the West we don't have them. You know, there has been various explanations for this, you know, from Christelle as a surgeon that this has to do with paradoxically excluding the mother from the literature and from the psyche, to are our diagnostic tools changing, meaning analysts, or are really patients changing? So, you know, there has been various explanations for this, but I think this just had to do with the fad of the times. Mm -hmm. You know, aggression became the thing that people were interested in. Um, I mean, Yvonne was saying something interesting that um, me and Fakhri were both very surprised. He was saying that if they have a conference here on sexuality, nobody shows up. But if they have it on love, they have a lot of people that comes. So, you know, this was this was very interesting to me.
1: It's a very interesting uh, angle yeah. you know, that you bring. You know, it's certainly true, isn't it, that in in Britain the emphasis in the last fifty years has been on the
9: pre edible yeah, pre-adolescent. Yes, yeah. yeah. And it's, I
1: mean, I, just as you were talking about sexuality, you made me think of a few patients for whom sexuality is very much in the in the consulting room, and it's talked about, but I wouldn't write a paper about it.
0: Isn't that interesting? Yeah.
2: So it, it's complex. Why did you call it Limito? <laughs> 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 Maybe
6: <laughs> <you laughs> it the right
0: <laughs> <laughs> no. we have
6: to come back to the front, please. I'm, if you don't mind, I'd like to go back to the relig- religious question. Uh, I think you already answered to part of my question. But anyway, it was uh, how. What is the relationship of your patients can with you this religion?
1: Can you hear the back? No, uh, sorry. Could, would you mind doing it in the microphone there? Sure. You? So my questions are:
6: first, uh, do your patients have a relationship with this religion, mm-hmm. and uh, how is it possible to be submitted to God and at the same time accept to be the subject of unconscious? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you already answered to the question, gentlemen, too and the other part of my question is more specific uh, about Shi'ism. You mentioned that Shi'ism uh, is in the tradition of mourning, very much, but I was wondering if the success of psychoanalysis in Iran could be related also to the fact that Shi'ism is very tolerant with the representation of images and of uh, the Prophet and and <coughs> others.
2: This is fascinating. This is very, very interesting for me. Um, I would uh, like to uh, you know, think about this and do research because I think it's a fascinating point you're bringing up. But to go back to the first part of your question, you know, I think, again, this is the same thing we could encounter anywhere else. Like, for example, the Islamic Republic in Princeton with the Catholic curve. So I don't Thing. again this is specific to Iran of course I have religious patients like you know every psychoanalyst has religious patients and again it's sort of the ability to I, I think if you're a good enough analyst the, the mastery of this sort of art is to find the language, that could be helpful to the patient. Again, the example I use, you know, I work with these extremely religious patients and I wrote a paper about them, these extremely religious women. The paper is called The Couch and the Chador because they were with the Chador on the couch. And what was interesting was that, for example, one of the techniques that I think we all use is to work with a person's super ego and try to make a, a kinder <laughs> super ego sort of thing. And it's not that I could, you know, say to these patients, for example, oh, you know, psychoanalysis thinks that God doesn't exist or things like that. But, for example, she would be consumed with guilt because of certain fantasies. And then I would say, well, I think your God is kinder than that, no? Mm -hmm. So I think that you're still doing psychoanalysis with an extremely (coughs) religious patient like you do anywhere else, as you would with a very Catholic patient. And they have various, you know, it makes, a fanatic religious person is so similar psychically everywhere that it's uncanny. There's so much more similarity between a fanatic Catholic and a fanatic Muslim than, I mean, it's, it's so it's the same way that you work with them. Yeah, but
1: I mean, I love the second part that you're bringing up. I mean, I think it's something very
2: interesting
5: to think about. Yeah. Okay. And we go over here? You want me to start? Yes. Um, I'm a psychotherapist living and working in London. Well, speak
1: into the microphone, <laughs> otherwise the people in the okay. back can't
5: I'm a psychotherapist living and working in London and I've been living here since I was 15 and I trained here what I was interested in I mean the question of language came up but you from know, a different way of thinking, you know, and sex and what you do but I was just wondering having been trained in the West um, and having spent quite a period of time in the West because this issue comes up for me when you started uh, your clinic I was just wondering how you then began to speak Farsi in doing psychotherapy or psychoanalysis, and yet having um, been trained in in a different language, Mm -hmm. and how it um, whether that was a struggle for you, because it is for me, because I'm kind of thinking, do you speak in Farsi? Do you think in Farsi? Do you speak? Do you think in English?
2: You know, this was one of the questions that was very close to my heart, close enough that I wrote my doctorate dissertation about this. So, and it's called, um, you know, can you be analyzed in a language that is not your mother tongue? Because I was fascinated with this. I was analyzing English and it wasn't my mother tongue. And I did an extensive research and interviewed people from all over the world who were in analysis, in a second language, and there were two groups. So one group that was only analyzed in a second language, and one group that was analyzed both in their mother tongue and a second language. And as you can imagine, there was quite a a bit of variety to this. So what happened was that I would have somebody from Brazil who barely spoke English, who had an analysis in São Paulo, came to the States and had an analysis in this language that was so far from, um, you know, any of his um, psychic structure, and um, the results were surprising. Language had nothing to do with anything. So what happened was that what mattered was the transference to the analyst.
5: Mm-hmm. I wasn't thinking in terms of the patient.
2: I was speaking in terms of you as an yeah, but it was the same thing because they were also analysts who were not doing analysis in their psych- in their first language. Mm-hmm. That also had to do with the counter-transference to the patient. Mm-hmm. So what happened for me was the same thing. I went there, and even though I speak far fluently, but my psychoanalytic language skills were almost non-existent. I can assure you of that. I had no, ac- you know, my all of my academic training has been in English, so even though I speak the sort of, you know, normal, everyday language very well, but academically, I really lack these skills. Mm -hmm. And that was not the challenge at all. There were certain other challenges because of the lack of familiarity with certain cultural things, Mm -hmm. but it was not the actual Mm -hmm. words, not the lexicon of the words, Mm -hmm. but what culturally, for example, you know? So, as I said, like, for example, an older patient would bring me a box of chocolate. And, uh, you know, I have a reputation for being a tough Freudian side I'm very capable of rejecting a box of chocolate. But in Iran, after the first weeks, I found myself, you know, I'm be my grandmother. And, uh, you know, suddenly all this tough Freudianness would be out the window and I would find myself with this box of chocolate. I would take it. So, you know, these were the struggles but that had nothing to do with the actual lexicon or the grammar of the language, but what your language in this large sense of it, with capital L what it, you know, what really language is about in the Lacanian sense.
1: But following her question do you, when you think conceptually in the consulting room, not when you think, what shall I say to this person?
2: Do you think in English or in Farsi? Conceptually in English. Mm So that, that, that
1: because I find that, and it's a very interesting thing, isn't it? Because the best clinicians are clinicians who speak an ordinary language, isn't it? they keep their conceptual stuff that goes on in the head separate from the ordinary dialogue that they have. That's so
2: interesting that you say that, because I think how not well I spoke Farsi helped me become a better analyst Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because I would say things that were so not sophisticated and I would never say them in English to a patient Mm -hmm. or even swearing. Mm -hmm. It's so easy for me to swear in Farsi. (laughs) So I would find myself saying these things to patients that I would never say to, especially to a patient in Boston, for example, you know, This sort of ordinariness that Mm -hmm. you're talking about, you know, not speaking the language well really helps me as a psychoanalyst. Mm -hmm. So now that I have gotten better with, you know, these five, six years, I still stick very much to that sort of discourse. Mm -hmm. Now choose to, because it's been so helpful, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm
1: -hmm. Right in the middle.
9: Thank you very much for doing psychoanalysis in Tehran, which is not a very easy thing to do. And uh, and second, thank you very much for writing a book which, uh, unlike its title, has everything opposite within the literature in Tehran. Which is is about actually talking about the universality of. Thank you so much. I love you. (laughs) you. (laughs) Especially in this very, very hard time for for Iranians. Uh, My question is. you talked about the archetypal problems, the position of archetypal of Shiite matters or pre-Islamic Iran or the historical role of father, etc. And I don't want to make it difficult for you to talk about something because you are going back to Iran. The political recent problems, say from 1979 onward, because Iran is a very, very fast-moving uh, country. The society, I mean, I left Iran in 2001, uh, I was in university in the 90s, and the sexual culture from my generation to about two generations after me, who went to university after the 1997 reform movement, completely, utterly changed. The question of virginity, the question of homosexuality, and, and also, from the other side, the role of authority. I mean, sorry about that. I think you're being
0: censored.
2: <laughs>
9: In fact, upon the role of father, something like when Shah was away, it has some impact. I'm not saying that has something to do with transcendental, paternal structure in Freudianism, but nonetheless, the degree of our negotiation with father changes after 79. So, in the last 10 years, through Green Movement, and all of these things are reflected back at the level of individual as well. That's one difficulty of your uh, work, because... I was one, I'm was wondering what your own preconceptions of Iran and your patient when you went back. Nonetheless, you were both abroad. And going back to Iran in 2003, 2004, 2005, what was the transparency and content transparency for you in relation to your own patients? Because even for me as someone who lived down to 25, going back and seeing all these changes, I think I do have lots of preconceptions myself.
2: First of all, I totally disagree with the first part that you're saying. I don't think that, for example, our relationship to fathers can intra-psychically change in 20 years. I think these things are much more inherited within the culture, and thank God, because I don't think that um, it's that um, easily changeable. So I don't think, you know, I, I totally disagree with that concept. And... Um, I think that I'm one of the few psychoanalysts who talks about countertransference as much as I have done in the book. So, of course, you have preconceived notions and you have countertransferences. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing or an interference. I think it could be dangerous only if you think you don't have it or if you're not aware of it or you don't address it or try to study it. The opposite, I think is one of the most important tools we have, I mean, diagnostically speaking even, at, um, within the consulting room. So I don't think that, I think of course I have it, but I think that um, um, if you're willing to acknowledge it and study it, it's one of the most important tools to have.
9: Then you said the book was therapeutic for you as well.
2: I think, any, I think,
1: I think any good book should be. <laughs> yeah. So I'm hoping. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you could you could see, I mean, I, I thought the long chat in your book does sort of address what you're asking, doesn't it? Because it's really very moving, the way you show that to locate yourself in Iran as it was when you went back there was a very complex and difficult thing. Now that's partly, as you say, to do with things that have happened externally. And I thought it was such a moving account, and you do it partly through describing your counter-transference so in such a, an open way, but also sensitive way, but through your patient, who is torn between mm-hmm. living in Paris, in a way, mm-hmm. and being there. Now, if you, if you think about that, it does sort of make a specific instance of something that could be seen as a reaction to these terrible external things that destroy what was before, that put in its place something that claims to be better by virtue of its its alliance with an omnipotent God. Now we know that's hugely traumatic. For any psyche to encounter, you're invited to identify with that. But it spells psychic death, doesn't it? And what's so moving about both your patient's struggle, but also yours, is how one comes to life and doesn't succumb to what you call the heaviness. When you talk about uh, the Kundra novel, not succumbing to the heaviness of the death instinct and destructiveness, but to try and find the lightness that is real, that is that's in touch with the terrible things that happen and doesn't idealize lightness. So such a so I thought that your question is absolutely on the on the money, but I thought that that the way you deal with it in that chapter also answers it to some extent.
2: And I think, you know, as we know, as psychoanalysts, you don't accidentally choose to write about a patient. Mm -hmm. You choose it because it has something to do with what you're trying to work through. And we were two women from different generations, but both recently returned and struggling very much with this return. Mm -hmm. Struggling with what it meant and how we're going to (coughs) psychically represent this for it to be... um, Less um, traumatic. No,
1: to bring some because life. To take your point, you know, to bring some life back, yeah. and not to succumb to the forces of death, three, psychic death. It's a very, it's very moving, and it's linked yeah. actually with what you're yeah. addressing. <laughs> now we've got time, for, unfortunately, for one question of So here, please. Thank
7: you. Yes, thank you. There was one um, aspect of your your practice actually that I I think um, finding myself quite interested in, and um, I hope you won't to orient a list, it orientalist, but it's in fact to do with the, with the chador, and it's already been mentioned actually. Because um, I was just thinking, I mean, it, it must make quite a difference those patients who who do wear that. And I'm just, wondering if you, maybe you said it in the book or in the article you mentioned, but whether what impact that, that has on, on you and, and perhaps also the other way around because you, you mentioned Winnicott and, and he famously says that the baby sees itself in the eyes of the mother and and if you're not wearing a, a scarf or veil, I assume, as when you practise and and one of your patients says, I, I just wonder I mean, is is it, that is quite a particular I,
2: mean, I wear it if I if the patient sort of needs me to wear it, right. like everything else. So if it's a male patient who's extremely religious, he needs me to wear it in order to be able to come. So I wear it. For most of my patients, I don't. But what was interesting about these women with the shador, I mean, so many layers were fascinating. But one was that according to the strictest Islamism, Islamic laws, even you know, to the most uh, strict rules, you don't have to wear anything in the room with another woman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the interesting thing for me was that they would hold on to these chadors as if they were holding on to life. Mm-hmm. And as um, the discourse sorts of got elaborated, I became interested in the points that they sort of dechadorized for me. Mm-hmm. And the points that were dechadorizing were the points that their unconscious was loosening. And then again, they would hold on to it at some point. So it became a diagnostic thing for me, which I talk about it in the, uh, in the article. You know, so it was being used like anything else within the analytic room. Again, as this sort of a balance between revealing yourself and hiding, which was extremely beautiful as a metaphor. Because, you know, it was like literally doing what we all do on the couch. You know, every attempt we make at revealing ourselves is an attempt to hide, and they were showing me that it was like you know, watching the opera
1: <laughs> well, we could go on and on, I suspect but <coughs> it is time to stop okay. and it remains for me to thank you Gohar very much for, I think renewing our faith in a way, yeah. in the sacramental yeah. thing, isn't it? It's absolutely
4: inspiring. And thank you for sharing. Thank you. Thank you. much to Abbas as well for such a wonderful host of generous yes. and, and very, very generous indeed. And and reminding that there are books downstairs and that uh oh, will be willing to sign. And just one forward announcement if I may. Um, the Ford Memorial Lecture this year is going to be given by Dr. Alan Francis, who is the head of the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual Number Four Task Force, and then resigned very publicly. Um in the make, during the making of DSM-5. And he's going to be talking about the importance of Freud at the making of the DSM um, on the um, 10th of June, I believe it now. is. It's on the website. And I hope you'll we'll all go and look, at, uh, look up to come because I, it promises to be an extraordinary talk.